Well, good morning. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's such a joy to be back with you this Lord's Day to worship the Lord together. Hear God's call to worship from Psalm 57, verses 9 through 11. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you, O Lord, among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the hymn of praise number 89. Oh, I'm sorry, that's from this evening. We'll sing hymn number 188, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. be seated. We now have the privilege to approach the Lord together in prayer. Would you please join me in a season together? Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have created all things and in them you sustain. You have made things which are visible and invisible, things we know well and things we have no idea about. They are as light to you because you made them and sustained them. Father, you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise and power. And we have gathered this day to give it to you in spirit and in truth. Father, we confess that our faith is weak. We have sinned against you. We confess that we have had other gods before you. We have created idols in our own hearts to worship. We have used your name in vain. We have not remembered your Sabbath by keeping it holy. Father, we have not honored our fathers and our mothers. We have murdered in our hearts. We have committed adultery. Father, we have stolen. We have lied. We have borne false witness. We have coveted. And we ask for your mercy that you would turn your eyes away from our sin and see the precious blood of Christ. It is in him that we are forgiven. He has won salvation for his people. All sins, past, present, and future for his people are no more. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we rejoice in our Savior. We thank you for our Savior that he willingly condescended to take on human flesh, to dwell among us yet without sin, to bestow upon us his perfect righteousness, and to take upon himself the dreadful weight of sin. We eagerly await his return, and we're thankful that you have given us a down payment on all the inheritance that awaits us in your Holy Spirit, that he has dwelt within us, that he causes us to persevere. He is our helper, our comforter, our strength. We ask that we would not quench your spirit, but that we would cooperate with him in our sanctification. Father, we have much to pray about as we do each week. We pray especially for the virus that has plagued us for the last year to go away, that the vaccines would do what they need to do, that folks would continue to practice a good hygiene, that the virus would lose its grip and hold upon us. We pray especially for those who have suffered its ravages and, and those who now are suffering with it. We pray that you would bring healing to them. We ask that you would be with those who are working in the hospitals, the doctors and nurses and frontline workers who Many are worn out and need an extra measure of of grace and endurance. I pray that you would provide it for them. And I pray especially that in the midst of it all, they would trust in you and know that you are God and there is no other. This virus is not outside of your control. It does nothing except what you permit it to do. And we plead with you that it would be no more. Father, we pray for our government officials. We ask that you would give them wisdom Beyond their means, we ask that you would enable them to rule justly, righteously, that they would be uh, rulers who emulate you in the way they carry out their rule. They need your help. 
And we ask that we would be a people who pray for them as you have called us to do in your scriptures. Father, we also pray for the church at large. We pray that this body of believers would be a light in the darkness in the midst of this time. That our neighbors and friends would remember that, yes, he reached out to me during the pandemic to check on me. And, and yes, she was an encouragement to me in the midst of the trials. We pray that your church would be a witness all over the world in the midst of this time. It's an opportunity for us to shine brightly. And we know that by the power of your spirit, we, we can and we will. We ask that you protect your people who face persecution this day because they gather in your name. We ask that you would give them boldness, confidence, fearlessness as they worship you, the true and living God. Father, we pray for the families in this church gathered here today. We pray for the husbands and wives, that you would bless their marriages, that their love for one another would emulate your love for your people, that in spite of the trials that we face uh, in marriage, that they would uh, be committed and faithful to one another. We thank you for marriage and for the companionship and love that you have blessed us with in this way. We pray for the children in this church that you would be at work in their souls as uh, their fathers and mothers and grandparents and, and friends raise them to love and honor you. We pray that a thousand faithful generations would come from this church and that in years to come people would look back and say, that's, that's the church, that's the person who had a great impact upon my faith. Father, we thank you that we can always come to you in prayer whether we are in the depths of sorrow, whether we are filled with anger, Father, whether we are joyful and walking on the highest heights, we can always approach you boldly in prayer because of what our great Savior has done. And now we join together in praying the prayer he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 17, so I invite you to turn to chapter 17. We'll read the first 15 verses together. <clears throat> Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. This is God's holy word. Now when they, that is Paul and Silas and their companions, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and did a great many number of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous 
And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the doxology. Please be seated. Our softer selection comes from selection number 47, which you'll find in the back of the hymnal on page 643. Selection number 47. This selection comes from Psalms 95 and 96. I'll read the light print and you join together in the bold. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. The sea is his, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long, but I grieved 
unto whom I swore in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day. For the Lord is great, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Lord, the Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the field be joyful, and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 27, Great is Thy Faithfulness.
Please be seated. Well, since I was last with you, at the end of December, our family has had two big events take place. You remember we were supposed to have a baby last time I was here. Well, we had the baby. We had a little girl named Hannah the first week of January, and it has been a lot of fun watching the boys become big brothers and really falling in love with her. So thank you for your prayers for us over the last uh, month or two. We still need them. Last night was a pretty sleepless night, so uh, keep praying for us. The second thing that is exciting is we have reached 78% of our needed fundraising in order to begin ministry in the state capital with ministry to state. So we'll begin part-time ministry in the capital and continue raising the last little bit of funds uh, part-time as well as we travel around the state. But as you may know, the session meets this year beginning March 2nd and will run through April 30th. So we'll be there in the capital doing ministry, discipleship, evangelism for the sake of the gospel and ministering to those who serve in the government. So I have two little cards if you want to take one. One's a prayer card here. Hannah is not in the picture, so you might need to get a Sharpie and just draw her in there. So take a prayer card and keep us in mind. Stick it on your refrigerator or on your desk and it has a little explanation about what ministry to state is on the back. And then this is just a little card if you're interested in helping us reach the last 22% of our funds for the year. You can give and it has instructions on how to do that on the back. So please take those and uh, use them to pray for us and, and keep us in mind as we begin ministry this year. Really excited about doing it and uh, thankful to be with you so near the Capitol. You'll probably see some people come over from the Capitol as I Meet folks there and send them your way. So get ready. With that, let's uh, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This will be our sermon passage for the morning, the first 10 verses. Actually, it's all 10 verses of chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 10. This is God's holy word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. 
Your word is truth. Your word is life. We ask that you would illuminate to us through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. May we leave this place changed, having spent this time in your word with you and with one another. May your spirit be at work in us, making us more like Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Growing up, my family had a Christmas tradition where every Christmas Eve, my dad would pull out the VHS of Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. And every Christmas Eve, we had to watch It's a Wonderful Life. Now, I grew to love the film, right? It's one of the greatest films of the 20th century. And it tells the story, you're well acquainted with it, of George Bailey, who is given the great blessing by his angel Clarence of seeing what the world would have been like had he never been born. And he sees the impact that he has had on his family, on his community, and at the world at large. Now, I would argue that Paul in this opening chapter of Thessalonians, is doing something kind of similar here for the Thessalonian church. He's wanting to show them what an impact the gospel is having through them, not just in their church or in their city, but in the region and in the world at large. As you remember from our earlier reading, Paul and Silas and Timothy have been traveling on missionary journey. They come to Thessalonica. They proclaim the gospel for three consecutive Sabbaths. And then there's a mob that basically drags the people in the church before the government. And they're fined. They have their money taken simply because they have followed Christ as Paul has proclaimed the gospel and Paul's driven out of town and he flees and then they follow him to the next town over in Berea. So he keeps running until he makes it to Athens. What I want us to see in this text is the power of a Christ centered life. And there are three ways that we see it in this opening chapter. Number one, the Christ centered life is saturated in prayer in verses one through three. Secondly, the Christ-centered life is an incredible example of faith in verses 4 through 8. And thirdly, the Christ-centered life is transformed by the gospel. Saturated in prayer, an incredible example of faith, and transformed by the gospel. So let's consider the first three verses here, that the Christ-centered life is saturated in prayer. We see this in Paul and his traveling companion's life. Note in these verses two things, the frequency of their prayers and the content of their prayers. Listen, beginning in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch the frequency there? There are three words that Paul uses to describe the way that he and Silas and Timothy pray. First one is always. We always are praying for you. Secondly, he says we're constantly mentioning 
you always, constantly, and then he says we're constantly mentioning you and remembering you in our prayers. Did you note the verb tense there? Mentioning, remembering, it's an ongoing, constant action. He doesn't say we remembered you in our prayers. And he doesn't say we mentioned you in our prayers. He doesn't say we will mention you in our prayers or we will remember you. He says we are mentioning you. We are remembering you in our prayers always, constantly. Paul and his traveling companions are saturated in prayer. Note the content of their prayers. In verse 2, we thank God. Thanksgiving. They give thanks to God for the Thessalonian believers. In verse 2, they mention and remember the Thessalonians before their father. That is supplication. Now, I'm sure they're mentioning them in thanksgiving, right? We thank God always for you. We remember how you treated us when we arrived. We're thankful for you. But they're also lifting them before the throne of God. They understand the affliction that they have faced. And they're praying, Father, take care of the Thessalonian church. And they go before the throne of God in supplication. And then thirdly, there's a triad that you might recognize here. I don't know if you caught it, but look in verse 3. We remember before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He remembers the faith of the Thessalonians, their trust in Christ as they heard the gospel preached. He saw their labor of love in Christ. It wasn't just a feeling. It wasn't just lip service. But the love that they had for Christ was demonstrated in their labor for Paul and Silas and Timothy. And he prays for their hope. Not their wish. That's how we use hope a lot of times. We wish something will happen. We hope something will happen. But the hope that Paul speaks about is the hope in Christ. That is the joyful and confident expectation that Christ will fulfill his promises to his people. That's hope. The joyful and confident expectation that God will fulfill his promises to his people. Paul and his companions are imitating Christ. Think about the life of Christ and his prayer. Christ prayed in the morning. Christ prayed at night. Christ prayed alone. Christ prayed before thousands of people. Christ prayed in silence. He prayed out loud. He prayed when he was well. He prayed when he was betrayed. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. Christ's life was saturated in prayer and Paul and his companions imitate Christ. Now I'm not a master on the grill but I'm sure some of you are. And if you're familiar with grilling at all, you'll know that one of the most important things you can do as you grill a piece of meat is to make sure that you marinate it well beforehand. You let that chicken breast sit in the marinade and absorb the juices and the flavors before you put it on the grill. Right? And the longer you marinate it, the more full and flavorful it is as you enjoy it. Well, the same can be said of the Christian life and prayer. The more you are saturated and sit in prayer, and the more you surround yourself in prayer, the more beautiful, the more full your faith is in Christ. 
and the life that you enjoy in him. Is that how you would describe your prayer life? Your life is saturated in prayer? I think if we're honest with each other, we all could say my prayer life could use some extra help. So I have five practical things that can help you saturate your life in prayer. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, and some of you already do this, but these things I have found helpful in my own prayer life, and others have as well. So here you go. Take these for what they're worth. Number one, schedule a time of prayer every day. Maybe it's in the morning when you first wake up. Or maybe it's on your lunch break, you set aside 10 minutes for prayer. Or maybe it's in the evenings before you go to bed. But set aside a time where every day you know this time is set aside for prayer. It doesn't have to be hours of the day. Just set aside some intentional schedule where you pray every day. Secondly, use scripture to guide your prayers. So maybe you turn to Psalm 57, our call to worship. And as you read through that psalm, you pray that psalm to God. It's guiding your prayers to Him. You're thanking Him for the things He wants you to be thankful for. You're asking Him for the promises that He has made to you in the Scriptures. You're in love with the things He wants you to be in love with as you pray His Word back to Him. It's hard to pray sometimes because our flesh is weak, but Scripture can guide you and fill your prayers with the Word of God as you pray it back to Him. Thirdly, just like Paul and Silas and Timothy, thank God in your prayers for His blessings. Now you learn this from the time you're a little little child, don't you, right? Your parents teach you, kneel beside your bed and we thank God for grandma and grandpa and for my toys and the kitty and you learn to be thankful from the beginning. But one theologian makes sure to point out that without a prayerful contemplation of divine blessings, there can be no attitude of thanksgiving. Without a prayerful contemplation of divine blessings, there can be no attitude of thanksgiving. That is, we look for and we see God's constant blessings in our lives and that gives us a complete culture of thanksgiving in our life. Not just in our prayers, but in our lives as we see God's blessing here. We see God's blessing there and we turn in prayer and thanksgiving to him. It creates a life of thanksgiving. Fourthly, Another easy one, remember others in your prayers, not just yourself. Sometimes it's easy to get stuck in that rut, right? You know what's going on with you. You know the things that you're dealing with. You you know to pray for yourself. You're asking for help constantly from God. And it's sometimes easy to forget about others. We don't pray for others. We don't pray for our neighbor or our family member or our friend or our co-worker who are in need of our prayers. So remember other, others in your prayers, and I would say one easy way to do that is to create a list. Use a directory, for example, a church directory if you have one. And if you don't have a church directory, you know people in your neighborhood and you know people in the church and you just start making a list and begin to pray through that list of people. Number five, and this is the final one, create a weekly prayer list. So, for example, on Mondays, you have on your prayer list, I'm going to pray for the government officials 
from the president all the way down to the governor and the mayor of Tallahassee. And on Mondays, I'm always sure that that's what I'm going to pray for. And then you might have, for example, a friend who's wrestling with cancer. So you put Bob on Mondays. I'm always praying for Bob for sure on Mondays to deal with his cancer. Then on Tuesday, on Tuesdays, I'm going to pray for the missionaries that our church supports. And every Tuesday, that's one of the things that I pray for in my prayer time, the missionaries on the back of this bulletin. And then I'm also going to pray for my son who has left the faith. Now, I'm sure you'd be praying for him more than just on Tuesdays, but you've got him on the list, right? And you're intentionally creating this list so that your prayer life is always, it's constant, it's mentioning, it's remembering, just like Paul has mentioned in this chapter. Paul and his companions show us that a Christ-centered life is saturated with prayer. Secondly, The Christ-centered life is an incredible example of faith. Now we see this not just in Paul and his companions' lives, but we see it also in the lives of the Thessalonians. But let's consider Paul and his companions first in verse 5. He says that we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now think for a second about what Paul's saying here. He says that our gospel came to you not just in word. Well, what's going on at this time in the Greek world? There are all kinds of traveling teachers. There are all kinds of traveling philosophers. There are all kinds of preachers who would come and have some word for you. And that was how they made their livelihood. And some of them manipulate people and, and take money from people that wasn't deserved. And so Paul makes it clear that we came to you in word, just like these other guys did. Some of them referred to themselves as super apostles, right? We came to you in word, but it wasn't just in word. The gospel came to you in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And that wasn't conviction just on Paul's part as he proclaimed the gospel. Of course, he's convinced of the truth of the gospel. But that conviction was on the part of the Thessalonians as well. As they heard and received the gospel and were convinced of its truth as Paul proclaimed it. Paul is setting an incredible example of faith as he proclaims the gospel to the Thessalonian church. You'll notice the last sentence in verse 5. Paul says, And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Paul and Silas and Timothy were not there for their sake. They weren't there to manipulate. They weren't there to steal to hoodwink, they were there for the good of the Thessalonian church. They were there for their sake, and they showed the power of the Christ-centered life by their example among them. You know from Paul's letters elsewhere that he works, if need be, to provide for himself. He's a tent maker, right? He works for himself to not put any extra burden on the churches to provide for him. He does what's necessary to set the example before them. His Christ-centered life is an incredible example of faith to the Thessalonians. Now what's interesting in the next couple verses is Paul shows that the Thessalonians get it. They understand as they become imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy. Look at verse 6. 
and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. There's this beautiful chain that Paul just explains here. If you take it backwards, it goes like this. Jesus Christ set the example before his disciples. And Paul imitates Christ. And Silas and Timothy imitate Paul. And the Thessalonians imitate Paul and Silas and Timothy. And by the law of transition, right there, they're already imitating Christ. They're imitating the Lord. And that's exactly what Paul says. You became imitators of us and imitators of the Lord. Their faith is an incredible example to others. How have you done this? How have you been an imitator of the Lord? You've done it. You've been an example to others as you've you've imitated Christ. What are some ways that you've done that in your life? Secondly, Paul says in verse 6, that the Thessalonians received the word in much affliction. Now we know the affliction Paul's referring to, right? That's from Acts chapter 17. They're in the midst of affliction, losing their property, losing their money, being dragged before the government officials because of their faith in Christ. And they don't reject the word. They receive the word. How have you done that? You've faced affliction in your own lives. You've faced illness. You've faced hardship. You've lost money. You've been in the midst of danger and trial and temptation. And in those moments... There were times where you received God's word. And you can be encouraged by that. How have you done that? Thirdly, Paul says in verse 6 that they received the word in the midst of affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. They received the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, We often face affliction and rather than receive God's word with joy, sometimes we get angry with God. And we have a begrudging attitude that God would put me in this situation or that he would do this to me. And rather than receiving God's word with joy by the Holy Spirit in the midst of affliction, we resent God for doing something like this to us. But there have been other times in your life where in the midst of affliction, you've received the word and you have received it with joy in the Holy Spirit. It was exactly what God sent you in that hour and you needed it. And you received it with joy. Do you remember those moments? Fourthly, Paul says in verse 7 that the Thessalonians have become an example to all believers. Not just to each other in the church. Their faith isn't just an example to each other. Their faith isn't just an example to the next town over. Their faith isn't just an example to the region, to Macedonia and Achaia. Their example of faith has extended far outside of their own region. How have you done that? You've done it. Your faith has been an example to your children. Your faith has been an example to your neighbor. Your faith has been an example to those you work with, whether you realize it or not. We live in a dark world. 
And you are a bright light in the midst of that darkness to those around you. Your faith has been an incredible example to others around you. Fifthly, in verse 8, Paul says that your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Why doesn't he have to say anything? Look at the preceding clause. He says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Now, there's a really cool word that Paul uses here. It's one Greek word behind two English words, sounded forth. Now, this word is used in other Greek literature to describe the sound of pealing thunder. You've, you've been in Tallahassee long enough where you've heard a good thunderstorm, right? And you remember with the sound when that thunder smashes and you can hear it reverberate throughout the little town that you're in, right? Pow! And you hear the echo go throughout the rest of the sky. That's this word. Or it's used elsewhere in Greek literature to describe 1,000 barking dogs. <laughs> One barking dog's loud enough in the middle of the night, but a 1,000 Barking dogs. That's the word that's used here. The faith of the Thessalonians has reverberated throughout Thessalonica. It's reverberated throughout their region. Could that be said of Calvary? I think it could. Not just from the pulpit, but from your lives. The example that you set to those around you. The gospel is reverberating from your life as you bear witness to the truth of the gospel. Finally, Paul said that their faith has gone forth everywhere. How has your faith gone forth everywhere? It has. Think about your life for a second. Think back over your life as a believer and where your faith has gone. How it has gone out to those you've loved to those you've interacted with, somebody you wrote an email to, somebody you barely even interacted with, but something happened as the Holy Spirit worked in you through them. Where has your faith gone? You know, it makes evangelism much easier when you live your faith out in that way. Paul says it himself, we didn't have to say anything else. Your example said it all. We didn't have to say anything. Their example was an incredible testimony to the truth of the gospel. Now, those of you who grew up with sisters or brothers and there's maybe one golden child in the family, did you ever have a parent say something like this? Why can't you be more like your sister? Or why can't you be more like your brother and do this or do that? That kind of always hurt a little bit if they said that to you. That's not what Paul's doing here, right? He's not saying, why can't you just be a little bit more like the Thessalonians here? What Paul is doing is he's setting an example. He's leading the way. He's running a race. And he's saying to the Thessalonians, come on. Come, come alongside me and run this race with me. You're doing great. Keep up. And he's calling out to you through this letter. Come on, join me in the Thessalonians. Come on, let's run together and run this race well. We're doing great. Keep it up. Let's go. He's the encouraging coach calling his runners to join him in the race. So let me encourage you. Your life is an incredible example of faith to those around you. 
We don't always get to see how that's the case. But let me tell you, it's the case. When Jesus says you're like a city that's set on a hill, and you're like salt that never loses its flavor, that's what he means. He's not just saying some fancy words to make you get a nice feeling inside. He's telling the truth about what he's doing through you. Your life is an incredible example of faith as you center it on Christ. Finally, the Christ-centered life, Paul will make clear, is transformed by the gospel in verses 9 and 10. This is what he says. For they themselves, those who have heard about the Thessalonians' faith, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now think for a second what Paul is actually communicating here about the Thessalonians. Put yourself in the Thessalonians' shoes for a second. We we read this phrase that Paul says, you turned to God from idols, and we think, oh, that's, that's nice, that's great. They turned away from idols. And it doesn't quite connect with us in our modern setting because we don't have idols set up that we're worshiping. So it doesn't quite fully connect with us. So think for a second what's actually being said here. The Thessalonian people, those in this church, are turning their back on generations and generations and generations of religion that they've been brought up in. Their parents raised them in it. Their grandparents taught them the truths of it. And they're turning their back on that. It's not just that, that they're turning their back on their families and their history and their tradition and their religion. They're turning their back on an entire culture. The Greek culture. The greatest culture that has existed at this point in time. They're turning their back on it because what's intrinsic to the Greek culture is the worship of the Greek gods. Worshipping in the temple of Athena. Giving sacrifices to the idols. And the Thessalonians are turning their back on the entire culture. Their lives have been transformed. That they're willing to risk their lives, their property, their money, their families to give all of that up. That's why their faith has reverberated throughout the region. They're not doing that anymore. They have come to worship the living and true God. Not dead false idols. The living and true God. And then in verse 10, Paul packs this last verse full of doctrine when he describes the faith of the Thessalonians. He says that you have turned to serve the living and true God to wait for his son from heaven, believing that he has risen, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, let's just take a second and try to unpack everything that Paul just put in these few phrases. Firstly, he finalizes an outworking of the Trinitarian formula in this, in this chapter. God the Father, the Holy Spirit, now God the Son, explained 
in their faith. They believe in the triune God. They have turned to God to wait for his son from heaven. And they're not waiting like you and I wait in a doctor's office, right? Man, that takes so long sometimes, doesn't it? Apologies to any doctors out there. You sit in the doctor's office waiting and waiting for your appointment to come and you're just twiddling your thumbs or playing on your phone or looking at whatever magazines they have there. That's not the kind of waiting that the Thessalonians are doing here, right? They are hoping. They are anticipating. They are eager, looking forward to the day of Christ's return and they're doing while they're waiting. They're doing while they're waiting. In the midst of great affliction. They're not just bystanders watching the game go on. They're in the game and they're playing hard. They're waiting for his son from heaven. And they believe that Christ has risen from the dead, the resurrection. So they've got the Trinity, they've got the resurrection, and they know that Christ is the one who delivers them from the wrath of God. That's propitiation. The turning away of God's wrath from the sinner who justly deserves it, but Christ takes it on himself. The Thessalonians' faith Man, and just a few Sundays or Saturdays that Paul was there, they got it. They understood the truth of the gospel. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, working out their salvation, turning God's wrath away from them and Christ bearing that upon himself, paying the price that they deserved from worshiping idols, which their families had done for generations. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of a Christ-centered life. In 1864, Scottish Presbyterian missionary John Patton and his wife Margaret went to the island of Aniwa in the South Pacific. And listen to his journal entry as they arrived on the island after a while. <clears throat> the natives were cannibals and occasionally ate the flesh of their defeated foes. They practiced infanticide and widow sacrifice, killing the widows of deceased men so that they could serve their husbands in the next world. Their worship was entirely a service of fear, its aim being to propitiate this or that evil spirit to prevent calamity or to secure revenge. They deified their chiefs so that almost every village or tribe had its own sacred man. They exercised an extraordinary influence for evil, these village tribal priests, and were believed to have the disposal of life and death through their sacred ceremonies. They also worshipped the spirits of departed ancestors and heroes through their material idols of wood and stone. They feared the spirits and sought their aid, especially seeking to propitiate those who presided over war and peace, famine and plenty, Health and sickness, destruction and prosperity, life and death. Their whole worship was one of slavish fear. And so far as ever I could learn, they had no idea of a God of mercy or grace. Now Patton admitted that at times his heart wavered wondering whether or not these people could be brought to the point of weaving Christian ideas into their spiritual consciousness of their lives. But he took heart 
from the power of the gospel. It's the words that he used. He took heart from the power of the gospel. And in the next 15 years, they saw the entire island turn to Christ. He took heart from the power of the gospel. And in the next 15 years, he saw the entire island come to faith in Christ. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the Christ-centered life. That's the power of a transformed life. It has the power to transform these natives. It had the power to transform these Thessalonians 2,000 years ago. It had the power to transform you. Do you remember what you were like when you first believed? Do you remember how the gospel began to change you? It has transformed your life and it's still transforming your life. And next year when you look back on February 2021, guess what? You're going to be transformed. And the year after that when you look back on the previous year, guess what? You're going to be transformed. The power of the gospel transforms you. Not just once, moving you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But continually, ongoing, as you work with the Holy Spirit in your sanctification, the power of the gospel transforms you. Paul is encouraging the Thessalonian church in this opening chapter. Encouraging them that their faith is true. Their faith is powerful. He's calling them to follow him and imitate him and saturating their lives in prayer. To be the example to those around them. And to recognize what Christ has done in them and will continue to do through them. Not just for their own sake, but for the sake of his kingdom And those who will join them. And if Paul was standing in this pulpit today. He'd want you to be encouraged. He'd want you to be encouraged by your faith. Not just because you did it. But because of what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. You are having an incredible impact on the world around you believer. Your faith is that bright light in the darkness. And you can be encouraged looking back over your life, seeing how Christ has used you, seeing how your faith has grown, seeing your life transformed, watching your prayer life grow. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. And you can be encouraged by that. When we leave this place today and you go out into the world tomorrow, you're going to be that great example. You might not always see it. You might not always realize how you're doing it. But Christ is at work in you, and he's at work through you. And you can take great heart, just like the missionary John Patton. Great heart in the power of the gospel as it transforms your life. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are thankful that your word is a word of encouragement to strengthen our faith, to remind us of where we have been and how far you have brought us, to give us courage 
and boldness and confidence as we go out into a fallen world to represent our Savior. And that we are, in fact, lights in the darkness. Cities set on a hill that cannot be hid. Salt that does not lose its flavor. Father, we ask that your spirit will continue to transform us as we cooperate with him, as we obey your word, as we do what you have commanded and as we believe your promises so that the world would be transformed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing hymn number 490, Onward Christian Soldiers.
receive now the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.